0: And now, would you please stand as we read this morning's text for the message? This is from Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah. And Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. When a cloud appeared and covered them, a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not do it. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. He stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Our kids can be dismissed to uh, programming down the hall for them. And to the rest of you, welcome. Uh, To those of you joining us online, welcome. I am so excited that you are here today because I was approved for a loan this last week. And this Thursday, Amy and I will be closing on a tank of gas. (laughs) Doesn't it feel like that? Oh, my goodness. I think that that is going to become uh, an even more... Uh, impressive joke in the weeks to come. Uh, But we're not here to talk about my loans. We're here to talk about the loan that we all have in the way of the Son of God coming to earth on loan from God to us and what that looks like. And so this series that we're going through is the Gospel of Mark, and we are marching our way through, looking at the life of Jesus. And we are over halfway in this journey now, and we will slide nicely into Easter uh, with chapter 16. And so today we come to a section where we get a picture to help us. Actually, it's not just a picture, but it is in fact the most famous oil painting in the world from the 1600s to about the early 20th century. It's Raphael's last painting. He was working on it actually when he died, and some think it to be his greatest. It hangs in the Vatican uh, gallery and it is entitled The Transfiguration. And uh, the painting covers the entire text that we just read. Uh, Not every week uh, we get this kind of visual help. And so let's let Raphael's work help us as we walk through the text. And what we're going to find is presence and problem and possible. Okay, so let's start at the first one, presence. What is this transfiguration thing all about? And that's the top of uh, Raphael's painting, the transfiguration. Uh, What does it mean? What is it? Well, Jesus takes three of his uh, most trusted disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up a mountain, and they're with him while he prays. And the text says that while they were there, Jesus changed the word is metamorpho maybe you recognize that from biology and he changed because god 's glory started to come out of him it didn 't shine on him it came from within him to to such an extent that his clothes became whiter than any white that tide can get okay um, and two figures when that happens show up two figures that are The most important figures in the history of Israel, Elijah, who is on the right of Jesus, and Moses, who is on the left, and these figures are important because Elijah represents all of the Old Testament prophets and what they were about. Moses represents all of the Old Testament law and what that was about, and so all of the law and prophets are here with Jesus talking, that's what Mark says. He doesn't say about what, but Luke does. Luke says, they were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so underneath these three figures, we have left to right, James, Peter, and John. And they wake up because they fell asleep praying. Uh, It's not the first time in the Garden of Gethsemane that the disciples fell asleep praying. It, It happens here. And they wake up to this amazing scene and they're terrified, reflexes start to take over, Peter is overwhelmed and he, he bumbles out the first thing that he thinks of and he says, let's make some tents for the three of you. It's kind of like if you were to find yourself suddenly in the presence of all of the presidents who are on Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, what would you do? What would that be like? It would be like you saying, hey, we need fireworks because America, right? That's where Peter is, and it's understandable, but he doesn't have to think very long because there's another character here in the story. You may think that we've covered all the characters, but there's actually one in the background. The character is the cloud that comes on the mountain and envelops everyone, and at this point, we have to go back and do some Old Testament history. I want you to go back and remember if you've uh, read through the Bible or if you've heard these stories, Moses leads his people, God's people, out of Egypt and they're in the desert. They camp at a place uh, at the base of a mountain called Sinai and Moses goes up the mountain and at the top of the mountain, a cloud comes down and envelops Moses and the voice of God comes out of the cloud and God speaks There, God's presence is there. And what's happening here? Same thing. We go up a mountain, God's presence and a cloud comes. And if there's any doubt that it's God, that doubt is removed when a voice comes from the cloud, just like it did for Moses. And hey, Moses is here, deja vu, right? And the words from the cloud say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus, get this, Jesus is standing with the greatest godly spiritual figures ever in the minds of any Israelite, right? Moses and Elijah, and God's voice from the cloud says nothing about them, but only Jesus. Listen to him. And those words of God elevate Jesus above Moses and Elijah. The message is pretty clear that Moses and Elijah started the work. They've been vital in preparing the way. But now Jesus is here to finish the job. He is completing, he is continuing the work of Moses and Elijah. He will say this himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He will say, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets. That's Moses and Elijah. I have come to fulfill them, right? And the disciples are here, and they're seeing all of this, and they've understood. We've already declared Jesus as the Messiah, but here is God emphatically stamping with his own voice in his everlasting, unchangeable word. This is my beloved son. Listen to Him, I'm sure that Peter and James and John had questions. They wanted to ask Moses and Elijah. God says, don't bother. Somebody better is here. Listen to Jesus. And each one of us is called to do that very same thing when the heavenly voice says, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus because he is the loved son of God. And and when we do that, when we start listening to him, there are going to be times that we're, we're scared and we say the wrong things. There are going to be times that we're confused and unsure of what's going on. But in those times when we listen to Jesus, what we will find, I think, is the presence of God around us anyway, strengthening us for the things that are ahead. And This scene at the top of Raphael's painting, it's about hope. On the way down the mountain, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, hey, don't tell anybody about this until I rise again. Now, there are a lot of things that we could camp out about there about that, but, but here's, here's the one takeaway. Jesus is saying, I want you to remember this experience on the mountain when you're down in the valley. Following me is going to get really hard because this path leads straight to a cross from here. Following Jesus has been pretty easy so far. But from here, it's going to get hard. And when those hard days come, I want you to remember the experience of heaven that you had on the top of the mountain and let that push you forward. The transfiguration is a foretaste of what we are all looking for, which is God. We are looking for God's presence in every pursuit. In everything you do, you are really after God and his acceptance and his mercy and his compassion and his care and his control. In every every bit of love that you try to extract from another person, you are really trying to earn the love of God. And here, we are reminded by the transfiguration that we have it, that we can find that presence of God that we are searching for. And so Raphael's painting, there's a scene above, and there's also a scene below. If you go to the lower part of the scene, you have uh, the nine other disciples on the lower left. On the, on the right, you have the crowd, and you have some scribes, uh, probably. And then framed to draw the eye is a father with his son who has an evil spirit. The scene below you can tell it's darker, right? There are a lot of shadows there. That's different from the top. The top is bright, illuminated. Raphael's hinting at something. I want to pan out again because um, I've wrestled with... Their, see those two guys in the bushes over there on the, on the left uh, at the top? I've wrestled all week with what those two guys are there for. Who are those two guys? And here's what I came up with, okay? This is just me. This is just Dusty Drake's lame attempt at art interpretation, okay? Uh, But I thought, okay, there are four gospel writers, and two of them are already painted into the picture. Uh, Peter's up above. Matthew's down here in the corner. Uh, Maybe, oh my goodness, what if... It's Mark and Luke that are kind of looking through the bushes as if they're getting the story secondhand, which they did. Mark is writing because of what Peter told him and Luke is writing because of all the evidences that he collected from people about the life of Jesus. And maybe it's Mark and Luke who are kind of looking on this scene from a distance. Oh man, that's great. It's not true man, I, I looked it up. It's actually, there's two they're two bozos. They, Raphael had to paint in there, so he got paid for something like that. I don't know. I love my interpretation, so let's go with that, okay? Here's the message, though, of the overall art. On the simplest level, there's a contrast between the two scenes, right? At the top, you have the redemptive power of Christ, and And it's symbolized with a a purity and symmetry and lots of light. And then down below, you have the flaws of man. You have suffering. you You have pain that's symbolized by darkness and shadows and chaos in the scene with everybody pointing, with gestures, with expressions above. Oh, God is here. Life is great. Down below, we don't know what to do. Life is hard. And so this overwhelming contrast between transfiguration and trouble and what Raphael gives us, and this is a sermon, the sermon in a sentence if you you want today, he gives us unbelief even in the very midst of belief. That's what he gives us. The painting absolutely shares the entire story of the text. And so Jesus and his disciples come off of the mountain from the very presence of God, And they step immediately into something else entirely. They step into unbelief. They step into a big problem. Now, going up the mountain for them was a climb, but the real climb is in coming down. Because as they descend, they talk with Jesus about what it means to resurrect from the dead and all of that. And Jesus points again to a cross. It's a section of text we did not read. But they realize again that the real climb has just started. That this path is going straight to a cross and they get the first taste of how hard it's going to be at the bottom of the mountain. They are plunged into chaos. And here's the scene at the bottom of the mountain. There are disciples and they are engaged in arguments. The opponents of the arguments are scribes or teachers of the law, depending on your translation. And we learn that the, the argument stems from the disciples' failure, a man with a boy with an evil spirit comes to the disciples, says, can you do anything? And to this point, oh my goodness, (laughs) yeah, we can do something. Jesus has sent us out with authority and we've come back victorious time and time again. We had lots of stories when we went out the first time. And so you come with us, uh, come to us with a boy with an evil spirit. Absolutely, no problem. We can do this. But in this case, Nothing worked. In this case, they were beaten. Maybe you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, This is an effect where cognitive bias uh, affects people with a low ability in some area because they greatly overestimate their expertise in that area. Uh, A really easy example is to uh, think about a person who thinks that they can sing. And so they go and they try out for American Idol and they end up a meme because they had no business being there in the first place. Okay, that's the effect, right? It is hard for us to effectively evaluate ourselves. It is not what you know that will get you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just isn't true. That's what will do you in. And that's where the disciples are. They've had just enough excess to conclude that they're competent, and so they say, no problem, bring that boy to us, and it all comes crashing down because they don't know what they don't know. And the consequences of that are an impatient crowd that is frustrated and angry with the disciples, and the the, the other consequence is uh, critiques from the scribes, the teachers of the law who come forward, and we can imagine, begin to tell the disciples how it really should be done, right? They can't do anything either, of course, but they knock the disciples down a peg or two because they can. They take the opportunity to. And so this is what Jesus and Peter and James and John run into on the mountain there with God. But now in this scene, in the middle of this, oh, where's the voice? Where's the cloud? It's not here. That's what Mark wants us to see. And for the student of Scripture... It's the exact same thing that happened to Moses. Do you remember? Moses goes up and he talks on the, with God on the top of the mountain. The very words of God are spoken to him. And he comes down the mountain with the very words of God in his hand. Written on stone. And what is going on at the base of the mountain? In the camp below, his brother Aaron and all the people of Israel are dancing. But it's not for God. They're dancing around a golden calf that they have made and have begun to worship. and The contrast couldn't be bigger in a lot of ways. Jesus is like Moses here. He's the new Moses. He goes up on the mountain. He comes down with God's validation, right? He walks into arguing and failing and suffering and fighting and... The thing that he sees is anything but faith. And so for Jesus, the new Moses, this scene that he walks into is a reminder. It's a slap in the face back to reality. This is the way the world works because it's broken and it needs fixed. The troubles that are encountered down the mountain, this unbelief, even in the middle of belief, that's where we all live. We all live in the land of frustration and failure and fighting and Jesus walks into the middle of this and he says, oh my goodness. (laughs) What's it going to take to fix this? And simultaneously, as he's asking that question, oh faithless generation, he knows the answer. That's why Mark writes the line, how long is it going to take? Jesus knows the answer to the problem is a cross. He sees this scene as a reminder that he was sent to fix it and to fix unbelief in the very presence of belief that will take a cross. And so the center of all of this fuss is a little boy who is possessed. He has an evil spirit and there is a father, a parent who is desperate with anxiety and Uh, He hasn't found an answer to this, and so the boy has a spirit that will not allow him to talk. It, It seizes him up. It throws him to the ground so that he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes stiff as a board, and it's happened since he was very small. Sometimes, even, the Father says, the spirit throws the boy into fire or into water. It wants to end him, and there surely... Scars and wounds from all of those episodes. And so the father comes to Jesus and he says, I went to your disciples and they couldn't do anything. Let's press pause just for a moment. Let's just ask this. Why couldn't the disciples do anything? At the end of everything in this text, maybe you caught it. The disciples asked the very same thing. Jesus, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we drive this one out? And Jesus' answer centers on prayer. Prayer? Could it really be that simple? Lots of commentators think so. Here's what they will say. That the disciples tried to exercise a demon without praying. What? What? Without praying, I mean, praying in their own strength, in their own power, I mean, we know, right, that that's obviously insanity. That's not going to work. I mean, when we are faced with the difficulties of our life, navigating prayer, or navigating life, uh, we're faced with evil and we're faced with fighting. Come on, what do we do? We pray first, right? Right? Right. Mm. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes we forget to. And that's where the disciples were. So this man says, I went to your disciples and there was an epic fail there. And so they just flexed harder and then the scribes joined in. They bowed up and everybody's fighting and they all think they have an answer. I'm just coming to you. And the father is the only one in the story that is willing to admit that he's weak and that he cannot fix the problem. And he and Jesus have this memorable exchange. It goes like this. So the father says, you know, I went to your disciples, they didn't do anything. So if you can do anything, Jesus says, if, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, I can do this if you believe. And the father says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. It's the famous line in the story, and it's kind of a nonsensical phrase. And it may be hard to get at first, but we have all said this, and so it should be easy to understand it and get it. It's it's this. We could rephrase it like this. Jesus, I'm trying, but I'm still riddled with doubt. Would you help me? And we've all been there. I was sitting uh, at a table with a few guys and one of them in the course of our conversation says something along the lines of, well, at least it's not one of those XYZ churches. And red flags went up in my brain because we are one of those XYZ churches, right? And we have good reason to be one of those XYZ churches. And in the moment, although I knew the good reasons, I knew all of the arguments, they weren't there. I had nothing to say in the moment. I believe God. Would you help me in my unbelief so that I know what to say here? Maybe you've been there. Maybe it's just a little different in your situation. Maybe you're going through a tough circumstance. You got a wrong diagnosis, or someone did the wrong thing, or the storm turned in the wrong direction, and you know, you know, even in the middle of that, that God is in control, that he is working for your best. You know that, but man, in the moment, you don't know that. There's all kinds of doubt God, I believe, but would you help me in my unbelief so that I wouldn't be so fearful, so that I wouldn't be so worried, so that I wouldn't be knocked off center like this? Or maybe this. God, no matter what I try, this sin is still dogging me, and I cannot seem to shake it. I'm trying, but it seems like I'm taking two steps back for every step forward, and it doesn't feel like progress. And God, I believe, right? I believe that you're bigger than my sin. I believe that you've forgiven me and seen me as your child. But God, would you help me in my unbelief? Would you help me to find a way to actually live like your child? Would you give me a new mind so that this sin isn't attractive to me anymore? We've been there. What we see in verse 24 is a man who is aware that his belief is imperfect. And so he asks Jesus to heal it. I do believe, but would you step into my unbelief? That's this man's plea. And let's just pause and extract that for a moment. Because that is a beautiful prayer that would be helpful for us to pray every day a prayer like that a prayer that says lord i believe but would you help me where i don't if we put words to it maybe word for word it could look like this lord whatever is in me that does not believe or want to believe would you heal that first lord whatever is in me that does not believe or want to believe would you heal that first maybe there's a situation where you don't know what to say You don't know what will happen. You don't know what to do. Lord, whatever is in me that does not believe or want to believe, would you heal that first? And that prayer, what it's going to do is it's going to bring out the possible. And that's what we end with today. To get out the possible, we we have to go back to the top of the mountain. And there's one phrase that Mark uses that sticks out. He intends for it to stick out. It is lasting. It is impactful. And Raphael cannot picture it in his painting because if he did, there wouldn't be anything else left to paint. And here it is. Uh, If you don't get anything else today, I want you to get this. And remember first, who is there on the mountain in the middle of the night, by the way? Uh, That's what Luke tells us. Uh, Jesus is there. Moses is there. Elijah is there. James and John and Peter and his make-believe tents are there. And God, is there. God in a cloud, his presence enveloping everyone, giving them a glimpse of what eternity will feel like. They're experiencing heaven. Then verse 8, Mark says this, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but, read it with me, Jesus only. Jesus only. That's what Mark wants us to catch and do you see why Raphael can't paint that? (laughs) Right? Do you realize what's possible when you look around you and you see Jesus only? Jump back to the story down the mountain. What is possible when a man with all that is going on around him chooses to focus on Jesus only? And I see a few things. Number one, Jesus only is the only way you're right. It's the only way you're right. This father comes and says, I'm trying, I believe, but I still have doubt. Would you help me to believe? Help me in my unbelief. And that kind of helplessness and surrender is the best news that you and I can hope for because that is the gospel. The gospel is, I don't clean myself up to come to Jesus. The gospel is, Jesus has done all the work so that I'm cleaned up. The gospel is I can't ever have enough faith to save myself. I'm totally dependent on Jesus because I don't have what it takes, but He does. We could say it this way Jesus, accept me not based on what I am, but on what you are. Jesus only is the only way we can be right with God. Here's number two. Jesus only is the only way that you're whole. That you're whole. This one is a little bit more challenging, but I want you to see what happens with the Father here. Jesus says, bring me your son. The son. And when this man hands over the son into the hands of Jesus, he's giving him the most precious thing in his life at that moment. Uh, He could have had a wife. Uh, There is even maybe a wife in Raphael's paintings. He could have had other kids. But at this moment, right now, this son is taking up all the energy, getting all the anxiety, getting all the heartache. This son is the one thing in this man's life that he thinks, if I could just get this fixed, my whole life will be fixed. Do you have that thing? You surely do. And what happens when this man gives that thing to Jesus? Bummer alert, verse 26, apparently the evil spirit comes out of the boy, but the boy ends up worse off. Before, he's sometimes afflicted with mutinous and seizures, but now it looks like he's dead. That's worse. It sure looks like Jesus says to this man with weak and timid faith, bring him to me. And when he does, Jesus makes things worse. That's what it looks like. And that might be you. In your story, maybe you've come to Jesus and things have gotten worse. Storms that you've never thought of, storms that you never anticipated. As Jesus is trying to wrestle out of you the thing that is destroying you. Oh man, I want you to consider this that there are three guys here Peter, James, and John. And of all of the the people there in this scene, only these three have been to the top of the mountain. Only these three have had a glimpse of what Jesus is up to. These are the only three people in the story down at the bottom of the mountain that do not blink when the boy lies motionless on the ground. These are the only ones who can say, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I know how this is going to end because they were just on the mountain. They saw the light. They saw the glory in Jesus. They saw who he really was, not just his earthly covering, but they saw God himself in the flesh. And they remember, they know, and everybody else around them is freaking out And these three are just leaning back in their chairs saying, just wait. Just wait. Jesus is going to fix it. Jesus is going to make this kid whole. And he did. And he will make you whole as well. It may not be like this. It's a journey. But it's a journey that will find its destination. That's what Jesus promises us. Give your most treasured things to Jesus, and you will never lose them, but try to keep them for yourself, and you'll never have them. Jesus only is the only way you're whole. Here's the third one. Jesus only is the only way you're hopeful. Uh, Maybe you remember the movie uh, Forrest Gump, and uh, there's a scene, uh, if you're familiar with that movie where Forrest quits working for Lieutenant Dan and goes back home and he begins mowing the local football field, right? And he enjoys it so much that he cuts that grass for free, right? And the next frame is Forrest at his mailbox and he's opening up a letter. The letter has the Apple logo at the top and keep in mind this was back in the 70s, right? And the voiceover says that Lieutenant Dan took care of all of his Bubba Gump money and got him invested in some kind of fruit company and then he got a call from Lieutenant Dan saying well we don't have to worry about money no more and Forrest says that's good, one less thing you remember that line that'd be nice right what's what's that thing in your life what's that one thing in your life that you would never like to have to worry about again, what's your one less thing It's phrased differently in the text, but that idea is exactly what Mark is pointing us to. I want you to look at what Jesus says to this evil spirit in verse 25. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, read it with me, and never enter him again. The boy, his father, the family, they have now one less thing, right? And in the words of Forrest, that's a good thing. I don't know what, on what level, and I don't know how extensive this was, but on some level he will never have to worry again about an evil spirit trying to destroy the image of God in him. That's what Satan's mission is, to try to destroy the image of God in you. And this boy never has to worry about that again. One less thing, man, that must be nice. Nice. That's kind of like Forrest Gump, getting investment money so he never has to worry about money again. That must be nice, but here's the reminder. You and I have that one less thing too. Because of what Jesus has done, because he gave himself on the cross, we have one less thing to worry about called sin. Sin was sent to destroy us. We invited it into the world, and that was the curse of sin, that it would destroy us. The curse that came with sin is dying, you will die. In other words, death has come in, and we are all on a steady march towards the grave, and we do things every day that contribute to that journey. Dying, you will die. That's the curse. But now, in Jesus, the curse has been reversed. It's dying, you will live. I use this so much, you should have it memorized by now. Say it with me, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener, right? Oh, that's good. One less thing, right? And it's a big, big thing. It's the reason that we have hope. It's the reason that we can say, you know what? There's a day coming when our one less thing is going to turn into no thing that we have to worry about. Why? Because we have a God on the mountain, only Jesus. And I think this is one of the messages that Raphael tries to get across in his painting. What do you see down below? You see arguing, right? You see failure, absolutely. Absolutely. You see sin and chaos. You see suffering, surely. If you could see the boy's eyes in the painting, Raphael paints them with no pupils, like he's clearly demon-possessed. But what else is here? There's a few disciples, and they're pointing. Their arms are stretched out, and they're pointing. If you follow a line from every one of those arms that are pointed up, where do they go? Jesus. Jesus only. Only Jesus can step into your unbelief and bring healing. And Jesus only is the only way that you're hopeful. Maybe today, you are like this man. I believe, but... I want to challenge you today to think through, what if I invited Jesus to step into my unbelief today? What if I invited Jesus to step into my unbelief, what would that look like? Maybe that would look like a father who loves me, wrapping me up with his presence in love and joy and peace. Maybe if I invited Jesus to step into my unbelief today, maybe that would look like an obedient son who came to the world to march towards a cross who was mute before his captors, who was thrown down beneath the weight of sin, who was cast into the fire of death. On your behalf. Maybe inviting Jesus into my unbelief looks like a life giving spirit who dwells inside of me because of the forgiveness that the cross affords me. And who says to me, this is his job to say to me every day, never again, never again. Because God sent his son and that son carried out the father's mission and will on the cross, never again. Your sin will never again be held against you. Hmm. What if you invited Jesus into your unbelief today? What would it look like? I can answer that question. It looks like life. It does not look like death. Look at verse 27. Jesus took the dead boy by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose arose. That's a strange word to put there, isn't it? Not with Jesus. And yes, he arose is the exact same word that we're going to talk about on Easter because that's what happens when you invite a Savior to step into your unbelief. You get up, you rise again, and you live. God, we thank you for letting us live, giving us the opportunity to live because of our Savior, Jesus, who has made that possible. And it's in his name that we pray and we worship.